Hello and welcome to episode four of Everything I Did Wrong as a Church Planter, a million-part series. I'm Logan Wolf, missionary to the state of Utah. My wife and I moved to Provo almost 12 years ago now, May 2011, uh, as church planters. And since that time, uh, our ministry has taken many different forms. We started uh, as a mobile church setting up and tearing down each week in the conference center of a hotel. Uh, we navigated a church merger and through that uh, became multi-site with buildings and staff in two different cities. And most recently, we are functioning as a network of house churches across the state of Utah. In this podcast, I am talking back through all of that uh, in order to share with you what I would do differently if I were pursuing those same courses of action, um, that same methodology, as well as what I would do if I were just starting from scratch, knowing everything that I know now. And my hopes in doing this is to save you some of the many, many missteps that I have made along the way, as well as just some of the frustration and heartache that I've gone through, uh, and your uh, just energy, your time, and your money as you're laboring or preparing to labor um, in your city. So this is episode four. After those first three episodes, I have solicited some feedback from some other brothers and sisters um, whose input I, I respect and trust and wanted to hear. And um, they, they listened to this, those first three episodes, and uh, a couple themes came back, uh, came out of our conversations together. One, uh, my desire to be, uh, I think, more provocative in this podcast, and, and by that I simply mean just provoking you to think through some things, uh, rather than prescriptive, telling you what to do, uh, might actually be be a weakness to this. And so as I expressed in episode one, I, I just wanted to challenge you to think through areas that I didn't think through. Um, however, what may be truly helpful to some of you, to more of you, is to explain how I arrived at my current positions uh, as I was wrestling with those past mistakes. And so going forward, I am going to try to give a little more direction, a little more um, specificity when it comes to the application. And hopefully you'll find that helpful as you um, think through these things on your own. Uh, two, a second theme that came out of those conversations, it was pointed out to me that what I have shared so far cannot rightly be called my mistakes. Um, but rather the mistakes of those who sent us to Utah. And so looking back personally, yes, I wish I had episode one, studied ecclesiology more. I wish I had episode two, actively been making disciples in North Carolina, where I was living and serving at the time. Um, episode three, I wish I had explored the many options available uh, when it comes to partnering with a sending agency. So those are things I would do different, but there were a lot of older and more experienced people around me at the time that should have spoken into all of that. And now again, having that been, that having been pointed out to me, I see that. So look, if I, again, if I were doing it all over, yes, those are some things I would, I would spend more time in and do differently. But those probably weren't just my mistakes alone. Um, so 
See, even even trying to talk about my mistakes, I'm uh, I'm making mistakes, and that's why this is a million part series because there's going to be no shortage of content. The many many things that I'm doing wrong. So since this is supposed to be a podcast about no one's mistakes, no one else's mistakes, but my own, um, I'm going to shift gears here a little bit rather than picking up where I left off in episode three. I'm going to jump ahead a little bit to a, to the topic of fundraising, uh, which is an ongoing activity for, for us, for many church planters, uh, but certainly it was a big piece of that season before we moved to Utah. And so I made a lot of mistakes here, uh, but the primary one, um, the title of this episode, is I, I made fundraising entirely about money. I made it entirely about money. Now, your role and responsibility when it comes to fundraising will no doubt depend on whether or not you decide to partner with a sending agency, um, going uh, under an organization as opposed to just rolling into a new place um, and starting, you know, finding a job and, and, and going from there, kind of the tent maker bivocational approach. Um, so not only will, will who you go with or whether or not you go with a sending agency uh, play a part in this, but also who that sending agency is. I'm, I know there are some denominational structures that have their church planters do little to no direct fundraising for themselves. I know there's organizations that raise money and it all goes into like a single pool and they kind of disperse it um, as necessary as needed. There are still others that will match certain amount of funds. Um, and then there's organizations that require the church planter to do all of the fundraising for themselves before they can go to the field. So they are solely responsible for you have to have X amount in the bank or X amount pledged coming in every month before we will give you the okay to go to go onto the field. So that was our situation. Um, mine and my wife's, uh, Grace, and we uh, partnered with an organization that required us to raise so much up front. So we had to have it cash in hand. And then they wanted to see some uh, monthly pledges coming in um, for the for the season ahead. So for all the shortcomings, perhaps we could talk through with with sending agencies. One of the strengths of the one we went with, the one that sent us to Utah, I think one of the biggest blessings um, of going with that organization was that they didn't take a percentage of what we raised. And I, I'm a, I know a, there are a number of, of organizations that you can partner with that will pull a percent, um, so many cents on the dollar um, of the money that comes in to your account or that you raise for the purpose of administration, overhead, that kind of thing. So that was not the case with us. 100% of what we raised went to us, went to the work in Utah. And that in itself actually allowed us to raise money at least a little bit faster than if we had gone maybe another route where a little bit had been taken out of. So again, that was a huge blessing. And I don't want to to overlook that fact. That was that was tremendous. And I think a generous um, uh, a generous act on the on the part of that sending organization. So what I did to raise money was get a list of all the churches from our denomination. And we had a, had access to a list, basically in in a binder form or, or spiral bound or something, and it included every church that was part of our denomination, broken down by state um, and city. 
And so I just started in our hometown and our home state and worked out from there. But I sent a letter to each of those churches and um, again, one state at a time. I didn't do the whole country. I was just kind of working out. But I sent them a letter explaining, introducing myself. Some of them already knew me, but but many didn't. Introducing myself, explaining what we wanted to do in Utah, what God had called us to do as church planters, and then letting them know that I would be following up with a phone call in hopes of scheduling a service with them where I could come in in person. And in those services, I would preach. And uh, I had just a, a handful of messages that I kind of, of rotated around during that time. Uh, for the longest time, I was just preaching one message. And my wife was finally like, you've got it. I can't hear this message again. You've got to change. You've got to change your sermon. Um, and so I was preaching those messages. And then I would talk about Utah. Again, I had never done any church planting. I wasn't making disciples at the time. I didn't have any cool stories. I just had some information, picture statistics about Utah that I was sharing. Um, and then I would invite the congregation to pray for us and to support us financially. And so that was the that was the strategy. We're going to go to these churches and we're going to do this. And so sent the letters out. I called the churches. If I got a voicemail, no one answered. I would call. I would call until I either got a yes or a definitive no. Uh, and some of the guys I called, I think were just ignoring me. And it would have saved us both a lot of time if they just got on the phone and said, I'm sorry, we're not going to have you in. Or at this time, we can't, we can't have you in for whatever reason. And so that's a message to uh, pastors, you can just, even if it's a no, it's okay to return, return someone's call. Um, so we did, so Grayson and I did this and we visited in person 121 churches in five different states over 16 months. And so pretty much every Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, and, or another night midweek, sometimes it was Tuesday, Thursday, or if there was uh, some kind of, you know, revival service happening where it was every night that week. We were showing up, and we were we were uh, introducing ourselves to people, and I was speaking. Before I get to the primary mistake that I just mentioned about fundraising, making it uh, entirely about money, I do want to run through a few other mistakes that I made here, just just quickly, to get you thinking. Um, number one, we did not raise enough money. Uh, <laughs> again, uh, someone else could have pointed this out to us back then and didn't, but we had, we did not raise enough money. We left North Carolina with $50,000 in hand. And that was supposed to cover a full year's salary for me. Uh, so mine and Grayson's living expenses, as well as all of our ministry expenses. And so that's what we came with. Granted, there were pledges, money that was pledged every month that was coming in and kind of, um, replenishing some of what we were spending, not all of it, but but it was was coming in as, after we moved there. But that $50,000 was thousands less than the median household income of Utah. Um, it might even be a Provo at that time. So thousands less than just the median income. And so not only was I'm supposed to live off this, me and Grayson, but we're, everything we're spending for the ministry has to come from this as well. So here's here's what happened. It created the scarcity mindset. Um, we started 
uh, the church here with a grand opening service. We did that, you know, the the common launch model. We did, we did, uh, and I'll talk about this in later episodes. We did the preview services, trying to establish a team up front, and then a big promoted grand opening service. If you're going to go that route, you have to spend money. Uh, I mean, you have to. There's the, you, it has to look not you're you're going big on the service. I think you need to be going big on the promotion, the advertising, the events leading up to it. You have to spend money, but I, there was and it, and it was fear. Um, it was fear, and it was this this scarcity kind of mindset. We only had X amount, and I was and I skimped. I was afraid that it would dwindle down faster than we were going to see God do anything. So I mean, that's not just fear, is it? That's uh, that's probably as much of much lack of faith as it is fear. Um, so we didn't, we, we were skimping and there were things we spent money on. Um, and then there were things we should have spent money on again, leading up to that grand opening service, especially that we didn't. And so whatever your target amount is, if you're the one solely responsible for raising your funds, I will go ahead and tell you, you relook look at your budget again. It's probably not enough. Um, I'm wishing, and again, I, I'm wishing one, we had upped my salary to at least be closer to the median income, household income of, of that time in our state. And then two, I'm wishing we had brought a little more clarity and been a little more robust in the budgeting for that first year of ministry, knowing that there's going to be this grand opening service as part of that year and and had that cushion. So even, even if that meant being a little longer getting here and fundraising, I think it would have been beneficial. Now, try to tell that to, you know, 23-year-old Logan um, in preparation to move to Utah. And I, I know I would have said, no way. I'm not I'm not going to spend any more time on the road. I'm ready to go to Utah. So I get it. You're eager. You're zealous. But I wish we had raised more money on the front end. Number two, something else that I did, I think we did wrong in regards to fundraising. We didn't reach out to the people we already knew like family and friends and neighbors and former teachers and coaches and professors and our doctor. And all. I mean, uh, all these people we could have reached out to for support um, and we didn't. And that honestly is just a huge oversight. I don't, I don't understand that. These were people, there are people in your life who will support you, not because they're excited about what you're doing or they understand what you're doing or anything just because, but just because they love you, they will, they will get behind you because they love you. They like you. And I wish we had really pressed into those natural relationships and just told people, hey, yeah, we're going. I mean, we weren't hiding that fact, but you would love you to be part of it. Would you consider, you know, would you consider giving to this to this cause, giving to help us get out there or something like that? Uh, the I mean, I, I was almost, again, I don't know what, if it was fear or what. I was, I don't, I was very close lipped I felt like looking back um, with those closest to us uh, one time I remember I was kind of like almost forced to talk about why we were going and what we were doing I was the last my last dentist appointment in North Carolina before moving and I had to t- I told my dentist I said hey this will be my last time here and he's like oh what's happening and I said hey we're moving to Utah and uh oh he said oh why why are you moving and it, Okay, this was fear because I was like, oh. again, I was not sharing the gospel. I was not making disciples. This is so ridiculous. And I, I told him, I said, we're going to go to Utah. We're going to start a church. And 
he was actually very encouraging in it and uh, very seemingly excited about it. And I remember he, he did not charge me for that last dentist visit. And I, even when I double checked, he's like, no, I just want to, I just want to be a, a help to you. And I thought that was that again, I should have been doing that all along. There are people who want to help you, people who like you, who love you and they will get behind you. And so um, anyway, uh, that dentist was a great guy. So reach out to those people already in your life before you start cold calling, before you start sending letters and making phone calls and emails and you know social media campaigns or whatever you're doing. Go have a conversation with your next door neighbor. Go have a conversation with your grandparents, with your you know former professors, and ask them to get get behind you. Ask them to support you. A third thing we did wrong uh, with fundraising is I didn't develop a any professional looking promotional materials, and it, it I mean it was just awful. So this no doubt in my mind was my attempt at saving money. Again, there are areas to save money. There are areas I think where we can be a little more cautious, a little more fickle, a little more conservative in our expenditures. This, I don't think, had to be one. And it, looking back on it, it's almost embarrassing. I, I was, again, repeatedly skimping in areas I didn't need to skimp in. So our sending agency did print um, prayer cards for us. So a prayer card just being this postcard size picture of me and my wife. And it said, you know, Provo, Utah on it. And on the back, it was the address of where you could send financial support and uh, I think some ways to contact us, like a phone number, an email address or something like that. So they did print those for us. Those did look nice, um, full color, glossy, all that kind of stuff. They, they designed those for us in-house. I didn't even have to mess with that. Um, but everything else was, was on us. And so we made this display board. Uh, I got rid of it because it wasn't even a piece of memorabilia I wanted to keep uh, once we got here. But it was like the you know the trifold boards you see at kids science fairs. That's that's what this is. Uh, that's what this was. That's what it looked like. So we had you know some maps and some pictures and some things on there, all the things that we had printed and cut out, and um, even on the map I was trying to for effect, I guess I was trying to show the location. It was a map of Provo and I was showing at a dot with all the, every dot everywhere there was a Mormon ward, a Mormon church building. And so to do that, I took a hole punch and I hole punched a bunch of red construction paper or something. So I had a bunch of these little red construction paper dots and then looking up where they were, um, and was gluing these dots to the map. Probably the most, I mean, <laughs> the most ridiculous way to do that. Because now you could jump on Google Maps and put all that in there and you could print it right, you know. It was just ridiculous. And so terrible trifle display board. Um, it was, I think, with a, a larger investment up front. If we had spent some money up front, and even if we had solicited the help of someone with the skills and the vision to do that kind of stuff, or even an outside, like a like a company, a business to do those design design things for us, we could have produced something very eye-catching, very engaging, memorable, and we just didn't. So if you are producing pamphlets, brochures, prayer cards, Ebooks, slides, social media graphics, a website, videos, some kind of physical display, whatever, whatever your materials are. I'll say this: Do not cut the corners. Um, do not cut corners in order just to save a few dollars. Those things are worth spending the money 
um, that investment to produce. So go ahead and, and produce things, uh, produce resources, materials that will look nice and be engaging and um, help people get fired up and excited about what you're doing. A fourth thing, fourth mistake we made is I didn't design this a, a pathway to keep supporters engaged. So we'd go to these churches, I'd speak, and by and large, that was it. Okay, now I don't Nelson Searcy. I don't know if you know who Nelson Searcy is. He's a, a church planter. I believe his first church was up in New York. Big on systems, a big systems guy. He has a book called Maximize How to Develop Extravagant Givers in Your Church. And he's he's great with, with systems, his processes of, of you know the one, two, three touches. And what do we do when someone is kind of drifting from that? Um, that pathway and how do you re-engage them and all, all this follow-up, man, tremendous stuff. Um, and so anyway, I would you can take his book, Maximize, and you can extrapolate those ideas, those principles, and you can apply them not in this a single church setting, like I'm trying to do this within one congregation, but to your itinerant or your deputation style of fundraising. So how, how do I develop extravagant givers in a pool of churches where I am showing up and casting vision and fundraising and, and, and that sort of thing. And so, again, that's something I wish I had done on the front end. Come across, I didn't come across that book until until later. Um, and then it sat in my Amazon list before long before I ever read it. But that would be a, a good help, I think, is to look how he's setting up some systems and what does that look like in a fundraising setting. So we'd show up at these churches. I'd preach. I'd talk about Utah. I'd ask them to pray and give. And the churches would oftentimes just give me an honorarium just for speaking. You know, I fill in that Sunday or that Sunday night for the pastor. Um, a lot of them would add us to their budget. So whether, you know, we were coming on the front end of their budget renewed in the summer or their budget renewed at the end of the year, the first of the year, that was the plan. They were going to put us in their, in their budget for a season. And or one or the other, they would take up a love offering on the spot. And a love offering just being they'd pass the plate or the offering plate and encourage everyone to give. And whatever came in, that offering, they gave that to, to the ministry, to us coming in and presenting. I I will say this. Um, sometimes that's all a church would do, ever. Like we we travel, we drive five, six, seven, eight hours to a church. We'd go, we'd preach, they'd take up a love offering. We never, that was it. That was all we ever saw from them. I will, that is a terrible way to support missions. This kind of like on the fly, sporadic kind of approach. I mean, if you're I, if you're if you're going to support missionaries, one I think limit the number of missionaries you support. We were in a number of churches that they were boasting, kind of like you know we support a hundred missionaries or we support you know whatever, and you find out that yeah they support a hundred missionaries at like one or two or four dollars a month. Um, and I mean, this, we were the recipient of some of that where churches that I was in of hundreds of people and uh, would give a dollar or two a month and, and then want, and then want like the authority to kind of speak into what we're doing and kind of provide direction. I don't know. I, it was a lot of headache for that. I would rather not have the dollar if it meant I had to, to put up with some of that. But I don't I limit the number of missionaries is what I'm getting at. Two, whatever else you do for a missionary financially, at the very least, put them in your budget. 
Uh, I mean, missionaries are just church planners are just like everyone else. They have these needs or responsibilities they're trying to anticipate or plan for or budget for. And man, what helps with that is knowing what is coming in every month, just like most people, um, most people do. So they should, they should be able to count on that monthly support. So anyway, I would, that was just a side rant. I'm sorry. That was not my mistake. I shouldn't have even gone down that road. I would, uh, I would, uh, go to these churches, I'd add them to our mailing list and as well as any individuals who gave directly to our sending agency. So if they gave didn't give to the local church they gave to our sending agency, I would have physical addresses and I would send them a printed newsletter every other month. And that was it. That's how we were communicating. Now, I didn't have social media at this time or anything of that nature. I, it was, man. So I should have been more intentional and in, in capturing people's contact information during those services. Um, individuals, not just the church building, like the organization, but individuals just capturing their contact info, anyone that was interested, particularly email address, email addresses. Man, I wish from the outset we were capturing people's email addresses. Um, And I probably would have continued with some printed newsletters, materials, but I would have reduced the frequency uh, to maybe quarterly. In fact, it wasn't until just... um, a few years ago that we stopped printed newsletters altogether. So we had been doing every other month and then um, years into being here, we went quarterly and, and then we kind of phased them out altogether. So a lot, why I did that is a lot of churches we were in like to hang missionary newsletters, like in their foyer on the bulletin board, or they had a missions board or something. They like to put them on display. So we did send those again as a PDF. We could have sent it as a PDF, but um, there was also a, a lot of older people, individuals who, just told us, I don't, we don't like to use email. We don't, can you just mail me one? And so again, that's, I mean, do what you want with that. Um, but we, I would probably have been more emphasis. I would emphasize more. Let me get your email. Let me get your email. Let me get your email. Then trying to get a bunch of physical addresses. So we send those, those, those out, um, with the email addresses I could have collected looking back on this. I mean, I could have sent out updates every couple of weeks, uh, which I tried to do once we were on the field. Um, I could have been sharing stories from the road, the fundraising um, piece of it, progress on our financial goals. Again, a lot of those churches didn't know until those printed newsletters would come out. So I could have been keeping people up to date. I could have shared our upcoming services schedules, inviting others to the, hey, if you know someone in the area, send them our way. Um, I could have even been soliciting leads, either fundraising leads or evangelistic, you know, lead something of that nature. And so again, I think a big opportunity lost is I wasn't, while I was in those services for that fundraising, uh, I wasn't really capturing, um, con- connecting with people like I could have. So one of the uh, things we're currently doing that I wish I had had this resource when we started years ago was we're actually posting all of our ministry updates now on epistle.org, epistle.org. It is a paid service, um, monthly, but it is a tremendous resource. It's secure. People subscribe to it. You put all your updates there. It, we can You can give through the site. It's a great um, a great tool. So I encourage you to check that out um, if you are someone who's communicating with supporters as a missionary or a, or a church planter. So this, this connects to the bigger mistake that I made in fundraising, making it entirely about money. I wish we had built more meaningful relationships with our donors uh, particularly with the churches that have put us in, in their budget. So granted, we're in 121 churches. You're talking thousands of people. Obviously, we can't have this personal connection with everybody. 
But there were people we met in churches we were in during that time that did connect with us, I think, more meaningfully enough, at least to say, hey, we're going to support. This is important enough. We're going to put you in our budget. We want you to come speak again. We went whatever. And so we could have been maybe developing those relationships a little, a little more. Uh, a book that got me thinking about this way, unfortunately, one that I didn't read until this initial fundraising was pretty much over and we were getting ready to move to Utah, was um, Betty Barnett's book, Friend Raising, Building a Missionary Support Team That Lasts. And uh, man, this she, this is a great book. A lot Again, some of it may be a little outdated, but there's a lot to think about so far as a meaningful communication with supporters, this ongoing relationship, seeing them as friends. I love the title, friend raising, and not just people you're constantly hitting up for money. So it's it's a great book to get. I, I recommend it. So in addition to keeping those churches engaged through the year, this frequent communication, we could have genuinely partnered in the work of the kingdom. And, and I know churches can get panicky when you talk about partnership, but here, here's what I wish I had proposed. And I want to I want to close with this. I, I I like to think of this as like concentric circles, and so the closer you get to the center, obviously the greater the level of of commitment. So on the outer ring is is you know the least amount of commitment, and then we move inward. So on this outermost ring would just be prayer. So what we can always what I can always do for another brother or sister, um, what all these churches could do for us, what any supporter could do for us, even now those of you listening to this, you can pray. Like you could pray for us. And I think anyone who's laboring to share the gospel with the lost, that is, we don't have to agree on anything else. But if they're out there telling people about Jesus and how to, and how to come to him, um, turn from their own sin, repent to that, and come to, to him through faith and what he's done, yes, I can pray for you and I can pray for people to be saved. So prayer. Um, I, wish I, would, I wish I actually had pressed in more and communicated more prayer needs than I actually did. I was, I think, a little... Uh, generic and vague when I probably some vulnerability and some specificity might have landed really well if I just was open with what was happening, especially once we got here. So prayer, if you go in uh, a, a layer, go, go into the next circle for going in a little tighter, um, the next thing would be sharing the gospel. And I think asking, I mean, truly wanting to partner with another church and share the gospel, this could have looked like a number of things. One, it could have involved some training. Now, at the time, I had no simple gospel tools that I was using, so I I would have had nothing to train. <laughs> but it would have been great if someone had had trained us. Uh, but it also could have been mission teams coming out to share the gospel with us alongside of us here in Utah. Now we had plenty of mission teams, and I'll talk more about them in uh, another episode. But we were not those teams. We were not going out and sharing the gospel. So it looked like. They could have had them come in here to share the gospel. Or then eventually in the future, what would it look like to have a team from Utah to go back to one of these other states, one of these other cities outside of Utah and share the gospel in those communities? So there could have been some mutual um, gospel sharing going on that I think would have been encouraging. You go one more ring in and that would be discipleship, um, developing new believers and, and providing some equipping, some training, um, some spiritual maturity. Man, it would have been awesome to have some of those pastors and or their staff come speak to to my team, uh, to our church, to pour into us and uh, develop us. And then again, flip side, let us come back and pour in to them um, as we're, we're all growing together in our relationship with Christ. And so I think there would have been some great opportunities for that. And then you go one more and, and that would be church. 
And uh, I don't know if we'd ever would have seen a partnership at that level, that kind of depth. But man, it would have been awesome, um, even from the outset, to cast a vision. Like, yeah, you're sending us to Utah to start a church. But what would it look like down the road if we were partnering, we were coming together to start another church in a different city or a different state and just begin to dream together and cast vision together? Uh, man, that would have been that would have been some meaningful partnership, partnering in prayer, partnering in the gospel, partnering in discipleship, partnering in, in, in church. But but again, I didn't do that. I was focused on raising the money. I wanted the money because I was if I got the money and hit that benchmark, I could move and get to Utah, which is where I wanted to be. Again, there was an urgency there. I don't know. Even if 23-year-old Logan went back and listened to this podcast, I don't think he would, it would change his mind. But I'm bringing it up to you. I hope this helps. Uh, if it has, please subscribe to the podcast. Please leave a rating. Um, I would also ask that you just share it, uh, post it on social media, pass it along to your um, church planning colleagues, team members, friends, family, whatever, in an email or text message or something, um, whether they're on the field already or even if they're preparing to go. Uh, my name is Logan Wolf, and this is Everything I Did Wrong as a Church Planter, a Million Part Series.